This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. Hey, this is David. I'm here with Dan, and we are aware that some of what we're going to be talking about on this episode this time around may be a trigger for some people. And so I just want to say that this is a trigger warning, particularly around the questions of clergy sexual abuse and the cover-up that followed. Hello, and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. This episode is for the middle of September 2018. My name is David Dalt, and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and he's assistant professor of systematic theology at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. We've been gone for the summer, but now we're back. Dan, it's so good to be back with you. Welcome. Thank you, David. Good to be with you, too. It's been, uh, feels like forever. We did one summer episode, but here we are back in the routine. Now, normally this would be the place where we'd introduce the topics for the show, but we're going to do things a little bit differently this time around, and we'll talk to you about that in just a minute. We're going to shift instead and just check in and see what's been going on for the last little bit between Dan and I over the last part of the summer. So, Dan, first of all, what have you been up to, travel man? Well, as it happens, I think you've stolen that title from me this summer. I think I may have shared over the last two seasons at various times that uh, it is true. I, I do travel quite a bit, and it's a great honor and privilege to have that as part of my ministry where I'm invited to speak or to give talks or lead retreats, and, and I've always enjoyed that. But I've also been very deliberate the last, let's say, year and a half or so about trying to clear some space over the summer. Those who listen who are academics or who know people who are researchers will realize that during the school year, we're going nonstop all the time. And there's a reason why faculty members at most universities and institutions have a nine-month contract. And so that's, you know, in the summertime, you have a couple months at least, or at least a significant chunk of time where you can do research, spend some time thinking, spend some time going into depth about the material that you're covering. And so I haven't had much of a chance to do that to the degree that I've liked just because I've been, as you said, traveling so much, so so busy in that regard. So I've been trying to scale that back a little bit, more or less successfully. And I've been in Hyde Park for the better part of, of the summer, which was wonderful. It's been nice to be here in Chicago, certainly humid to be here in Chicago. But I'm grateful to say that I've, I've gotten quite a bit of work done, never as much as could be done. There's a lot more I have to do still. But yeah, I'm ready to begin the academic year. Uh, but you, good sir, you have been on the road. You've been pulling 
calling a Dan Haran. <laughs> so I, I think that I've mentioned to listeners that I have been working with a couple of different organizations either to produce podcasts or to develop podcasts. And so let me talk about what's in the pipeline. So I've been working for a while now with Lisa Sharon Harper, formerly of Sojourners, on a wonderful podcast called Freedom Road. We've just released our eighth episode. We release one a month. And this one is Dynamite. It's got Reverend Dr. William Barber. Uh, oh, the Poor Persons uh, poor, Campaign. Poor Persons Campaign. Yeah, and uh, nice. just talking with a, a person from the Center of American Progress, Anish Singh. And the conversation is about how we've gotten to this point with the Supreme Court and what that means for the future and what that means particularly for voting rights. If you're interested in conversations that intersect social justice, race consciousness, and evangelical Christianity or just Christianity, it's a wonderful podcast to check out. Also, I've been working with Commonweal Magazine, and I'm happy to say that we're getting close to launching the first episode. I'm hoping that maybe early October, the first one will be coming out. They, they're they still deciding on the, the exact timeline, but I'll give folks more information as it's available. But the stuff that they've been generating, I was just saying to Dan off the air, is just dynamite. And I've been very, very pleased with how they have been stepping up to the plate and just knocking it out of the park in terms of the conversations they've been having. And I'm really excited to share it with people. And I've also been invited by a person with some connection to Mr. Rogers to work on a podcast about Mr. Rogers. And so that will be coming up uh, as details come together as well. Can I ask a quick question about the Commonweal podcast? Is there a title yet for it? Are they just calling it the Commonweal podcast? As you can imagine, it's hard to to come up with a good title that hasn't already been taken. And so I know that they are in conversation with people about kind of what the best title could be. I know that they've got a a bullpen of possibilities, but I don't know yet what they're going to call it. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Can I do a a quick plug for you? Please. Um, So so, you know, I, I listen to many, many podcasts, as, as I know you know and as you do yourself. So it's always difficult for me to keep up with the things I'm listening to that I really enjoy. And then even more difficult to pick up something new along the way. So sometimes I kind of pick and choose random episodes of other programs. And I have to say, this summer, I've picked up a couple episodes of Things Not Seen. And particularly when you have conversations with friends of mine or core colleagues I know. So I have to give a shout out. I mean, I'm sure all the episodes are extraordinary, as I have no doubt they are. But uh, a special shout out to your conversation with Heidi Russell and with Steve Millies, uh, our colleague at, at CTU, and Heidi's up at uh, Loyola uh, Chicago. I thought those conversations were excellent, and, and I've been talking particularly about Heidi's with, with a number of people and encouraging folks to listen to that, so check it out. Well, thank you for that, and one of the things that I enjoy about Things Not Seen is because of the length of time that we have, much like this show, we have a chance to really go in-depth and to get very personal if the guest is willing, and Heidi especially was willing to talk not only about her theological expertise, but also about her personal experience with adoption and with foster system and the foster system and what that means to her in terms of her vocation and that that blew me away i mean we it was an emotional time to be in the room and i'm glad to hear that it it conveys to a listener who wasn't there the power of that conversation thank you and i could say too that you know there are two that was one of the two kind of highlights for me uh, certainly that personal dimension and i thought the way she talked about and then kind of captured the experience of an adoptive parent or somebody involved in the foster care system was deeply touching. And I think as somebody who has not been part of that process, it illuminated for me the real honest kind of tensions that exist in the challenges, but also the beauty of it, too. Um, I, I won't dare try to paraphrase the expression that she used to describe, you know, what the relationship is between an adoptive parent and the memory or the experience of, of the biological family and so forth. But she does it so, so 
beautifully, I, I guess is the right word to say it, but in, in a very touching and honest and profound way. The other thing was the way she talked about being a theologian who is not a scientist and yet takes the natural sciences and theoretical sciences very seriously in her work. I thought she handled that very, very cautiously and, and appropriately, but also laid out kind of a, a platform for a lot of other theologians to not be afraid. I had a conversation last night, as it happens, with a colleague of mine, another theologian. We were talking about book projects we were working on over the summer. And uh, she happened to mention to me her desire to engage with some of the natural sciences, but her fear that, you know, it's just too daunting, too overwhelming. And I think what Heidi Russell does so well is is lay out like, look, you got to do this responsibly. You got to do it, you know, correctly, but it's not impossible. And you don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to have a PhD in physics or biology. So there's a real, I really appreciated her insight in terms of interdisciplinarity. Well, thank you for that. I'm not a scientist either, and I always learn when I have these conversations. And it's always helpful to me when someone makes that distinction and says, you know, I am, even though I write about science, I'm not a scientist. Several years ago, I did a podcast with Emily Grassley from the Field Museum, and she had a similar kind of firewall. And I, I find that useful because, you know, as an overeducated person sometimes, particularly as an overeducated white male, occasionally I can dip into feeling like I'm an expert on everything. And it's very helpful to be reminded that those firewalls are necessary and important and that there are times when just saying I don't know or I'm not qualified to say is perhaps the most powerful statement I could make in a in a moment like that. So I, I always appreciate it when guests speak from their experience and their expertise. I also appreciate it when guests set those kinds of limits. And let me turn that back to you and say congratulations to you. You have a new book out or coming out, All God's Creatures. Oh, yeah. So that, well, that book came out in the spring. Yeah. All God's Creatures, A Theology of Creation. I can't remember if we talked about it all in season two, but it is out. It's, it's available. It's extraordinarily expensive. <laughs> I have nothing to do with that. I just want to put, go on the record and saying, and part of that, I know, as you know well, and many of our listeners do too, it's really an academic monograph. I, I hope it's accessible. I, I like to think that even when I'm writing in a scholarly way, that, that my writing is, is reasonable and not just esoteric and jargony. But but because it's an academic book by you know, an academic publisher, they tend to, in the, in the first rounds of publishing, the first few months, only put out hardback copies. And they tend to be list priced at a very high rate. And that's because, you know, there's not a huge market. These aren't going to be bestsellers. They're not, you know, a lot of my, my readers over the years who are familiar with my works on spirituality in particular, those are geared toward a general or broad audience, or at least a broader audience. Those are geared toward, uh, you know, a general audience or, or a broader audience. And, and because of that, they, they'll sell a lot more than academic books typically do. Those runs tend to be smaller. So the academic publishers hope to regain the expenses that they put into publishing, you know, new research. And that usually comes back in terms of, you know, library purchases or, you know, some scholar, some universities purchasing these books. And then maybe a year, year and a half later, they'll come out with a paperback copy, which will be significantly cheaper. I mean, it's not your Barnes and Noble cheap, but, you know, in the $30, $40 range. So I don't want anyone to get scared with that book and its sticker price. There should be a, a cheaper paperback version on its way, but that's just the nature, sadly, of academic publishing today. But I did finish another book this summer and, and quite 
close, God willing, to finish uh, another one that's been on my plate for a while. But I did write a small book for liturgical press as part of their series on Pope Francis's writings. And so it's coming out, I think, right around the new year. And it's a kind of a commentary and a reading guide and a kind of a background to Pope Francis's uh, apostolic exhortation, Rejoice and Be Glad on Christian Holiness. Excellent. Well, that's a lot to catch up on. Thank you for taking a few minutes to do that. And I want to say thank you to listeners for your patience as Dan and I, who really we only get a chance to see one another socially when we sit down and do this because we're both busy. And so this is a a wonderful chance for me to catch up with him, but it's also a chance to share with you, our listeners, a little bit about what we're working on and how that informs the conversations that we end up having here. And so your your willingness to let us do that catch up is, is always appreciated. But now let's kind of turn to what if I can jump in one yeah. one more thing one more plug if if you want to come and see at least one of us if not both of us live this should drop on Wednesday September 12th well this upcoming Sunday for those in the Chicagoland area or nearby Catholic Theological Union the institution on which uh, I'm on the faculty has a, a public lecture series throughout the year called Sundays at CTU and the format's pretty straightforward you know there's a speaker you know usually a theologian who will speak and give a public lecture at three o'clock and at four o'clock in the afternoon, there's the the Sunday liturgy that the whole community is invited to stay for. And so uh, I'm the speaker this September. It's September 16th, Sunday, September 16th at 3 p.m. And the the title of my uh, lecture is Pope Francis's Guide to Holiness, Becoming Friends of God and Prophets. And it's really an unpacking and introduction to Pope Francis's latest apostolic exhortation on holiness. So especially given what we're about to talk about in the rest of the program, it seems very timely for us to consider holiness, the Christian vocation, discipleship, and what that means for each of us. So I hope to see many of you there. You're always welcome. And thank you for that. So let's take a moment and give an overview of what's going to be happening this season, because this season we're going to be doing something a little bit different. But Dan, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, thanks, David. So our listeners, if you've been with us through season one and season two, and if you haven't, they're on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to, to check those out. Our kind of pattern has been to look at timely issues, usually two or three subjects in a given episode that have to do with the political context, the church at this moment in history, things that might be in the news and so forth, and, and to offer a conversation, some reflection based on our Catholic faith, our Christian faith. Because of the things that have have transpired and are unfolding still since the summer, summer 2018, David and I have given a lot of thought to what we would do with season three. And we've both felt very strongly that we want to address a lot of what's unfolding, particularly as it pertains to clergy sexual abuse, uh, the cover-up crisis, the, the role of authority, the question of faith, the challenges and tensions and frustrations that people are feeling, certainly very justified in, in the wake of this. And moving forward, questions about where do we go from here. And so we've decided to dedicate season three to one particular theme. And we're calling it, just for the sake of a placeholder, wavering trust, wavering faith, tensions and frustrations in the church. And so for the next eight episodes, we plan to both, he and I are going to have a conversation, David and I will talk about these particular themes, but we've also slated to invite experts in the area, people who have experience with the the particular theme, with the exception of today's podcast. This first episode is just going to be David and I speaking and inviting you into our conversation that way. 
But what we're going to talk about today is the, the clergy sexual abuse and the things that have come to light over the summer and how that's impacted us. It's going to be a bit maybe more of an, a, a personal reflection, more so than just simply a, an analytical one, although we hope to provide some analysis as well that's, that's grounded in our theological training and so forth. But there are other issues that reflect tensions and frustrations of the people of God, of women and men of faith. And, and some of those include things like, what does it mean to be Latinoa in the Catholic Church? What does it mean to be somebody who is making up the largest percentage of the growing Catholic population in the United States, and yet considered still to be an other, still considered to be somebody at the margins. A quote-unquote minority. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. A minority who is becoming ever increasingly the majority, not only in the Roman Catholic Church in the United States, but also in the broader population. We're going to look at the question of LGBTQ persons and the way that they continue to feel ostracized. And again, uh, as, as David said, you know, quote-unquote minority, um, the othering of people. And this has become you know, an increasingly hot topic, and we might touch on some of that in our conversation today about the abuse and the kind of the fallout and the political maneuvering that's taken place. We want to talk about the role of patriarchy and uh, the place of, of women in the church and how women have been treated, particularly as it pertains to leadership and feelings of silencing and so forth. We want to talk about young adults in the church. We want to talk about racism in the church, something that we've talked about quite a bit in seasons one and two, but we want to take a deeper dive into that. We want to talk about economic frustrations and the role that class plays and the role that the economy plays with regard to the church. And, and most importantly, I think we want to wrap the season up by asking the question, where do we go from here? None of these episodes, we hope, are simply an opportunity to complain, although David and I, and David, you can maybe speak to this too, we, be, we believe very firmly in the importance of lament, both in the prayer life and in the liturgical life of the church. We also believe that there's a place for lament, there's a place for mourning, there's a place for prophetic, righteous anger, and we will welcome and protect that in this conversation too. I just want to affirm that, I want to second that, and say that, you know, oftentimes what we're observing, and I, I think that one example would be Susan Reynolds' piece in the New York Times recently when she documented a, a person standing up and speaking back to a priest in her home parish down in Atlanta, Georgia, you know, that resonated with a lot of people. And this notion of lament as as a chance to speak back, if you think about, you know, the book of Job and Job at least having the chance to say, you know, before God does the where were you stuff, Job at least has the chance to speak his peace. And I think that oftentimes what has been missing in these conversations is the chance for, for speaking peace and to have genuine listening and the possibility of genuine empathy and repentance. And one of the things that Dan and I talked about, and I hope this is okay to say, is the fact that Dan is an ordained priest gives us a unique moment here, not only to have experts to come on, but also to have moments of, I guess, genuine speaking back in a way, and a, a way to, to speak to someone who is part of the authoritative structure of the church, but is also willing to be there as an empathetic listener and as a, as a person who is, as we'll find out, who is also deeply touched by these issues and these struggles. And so for me, this is a unique moment, and I'm, I'm very, very thankful for Dan to be willing to, to you to be willing to, um, to do this with me and with our listeners. We hope that you'll find this to be a balm. I'm hoping that it will be. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, one part of it for sure is, is my role as a public minister, as David said. But it's also important to realize, too, that 
even you know David, who offers uh, the perspective of, of a spouse and a parent and a layperson in the church, who's a professional theologian as well. We don't want to keep this a conversation just between us. Although I certainly welcome that, as, as he just described that. But it's not just about me. Um, it's it's about a conversation that I think and I hope reflects and resonates with uh, men and women more broadly. So again, I just want to echo what David said in terms of, of the reaching out and, uh, and and reaching out to us. And and we'll see how this goes. This is a bit of an experiment. We've gone two seasons now, 16 episodes on the books where we've looked at a, a wide ranging slate of topics. We're hoping that this is, you know, not just something that is helpful to our listeners, but this is something, as we've talked about, that's, that seems very necessary and important for both myself and for David as well. And so here's where we've agreed to start. So, Dan, I am aware that the revelations that came out of Pennsylvania were damning of priests and of an entire infrastructure that, that helped to shield those priests. Some of the things that came out of those revelations were horrifying to the extent of the mechanisms that were used not only to shield the priests, but also for certain victims, they were almost marked. The notion of gold crosses and other things where children and the victims were were marked as kind of easy targets by these very visible signs so that other priests who were predatory could come and, and be, be aware of this. And one of the names that comes up again and again in these revelations is McCarrick. And where you have said that you were willing to start is the the fact that you were ordained under McCarrick. I guess that's the place to start. What where where do you want to go from that from that moment of saying that McCarrick was the person who helped to bring you into the order of priests? A, a bit of background just to kind of clarify a few things too. I think everything you said is generally correct. The McCarrick revelations actually predate the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report. In many ways, that just seemed to compound and broaden in very horrifying ways, as you named a few of, of the most disturbing and, and horrifying of the revelations that came out of the Grand Jury Report. The McCarrick revelations took place earlier in the summer when good reporting made public settlements and allegations that have been leveled against now former Cardinal McCarrick back when he was Bishop of Metuchen, New Jersey, and then Archbishop of Newark. And then within that context, I believe, is where these allegations arise. And even some of them go back to before he was a bishop, when he was when he was a priest. He's still a priest as a bishop, but you know what I mean. When he was before he was a bishop. And then there's been a lot of controversy, and we'll get into some of that later, about his tenure as Archbishop of Washington and then his retirement subsequently. You're right, and it's a matter of public record. Like hundreds, I imagine at this point, hundreds, given you know how long he was a bishop, of other priests, I was ordained by Cardinal McCarrick, then Cardinal McCarrick, when he was retired, May 19th, 2012. And so there are a couple things I, I just want to state from the beginning. One is that the relationship that I have to former Cardinal McCarrick, we'll just say McCarrick, is very different from a lot of what's been reported in terms of, or what people might imagine in light of the, the allegations, which, by the way, I should say, I have no reason to doubt. This is, I have no interest in defending McCarrick. I have no interest in questioning those who are survivors of, of abuse and harassment that have come forward. I have every reason in the world to believe them, but I don't have any personal reason, and I think I need to make that clear. 
I don't feel on the one hand that I'm obligated to explain my life to anybody else, but just given the nature of the circumstances and the kind of self-implication in talking about it, I think it's important for me to say from the beginning that I actually did not know that part of McCarrick's life. I knew nothing about it. He never related to me or approached me or abused me or harassed me in the way that has been alleged. And as I said, just because that's the case doesn't mean that it's not true. And so let me let me make sure that this is clarified. So sometimes you'll hear a response that says, well, I didn't see that happen. And the implication is that therefore it didn't happen. What I'm hearing you saying instead is you did not personally experience this or see this happen. Nevertheless, you believe the victims. Nevertheless, you believe. That's the, right. Yeah. OK. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm trying to make a distinction because I, mean, I want to be very careful with my words because people will hear well, Father Dan was ordained by McCarrick, therefore, dot, 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 you know, is he associated with this? Did he know something? Is he aware of this? And the answer is no. And what makes it very troubling to me in some way is that oftentimes people in bad faith are quick to make associations. You see that with trolls on social media and so forth, most of whom I don't pay any attention to or muted or blocked anyways. But there are others who, who might have those questions just because for whatever reason. So that's the distinction I want to make. And you're right to, to reiterate my position, which is I, I believe the survivors. I believe the people who come forward for two reasons. I think there's a part of us that owes anybody who makes a credible allegation the right to be heard and the presumption of veracity. Too often, victims and survivors of abuse and harassment, whether they be children, adults, uh, women in the workplace, uh, seminarians or men in an ecclesiastical structure are, you know, further victimized by being silenced, by being dismissed, by being discredited. And so my, what I'm trying to say is that my presumption is one of the veracity, the truth of what somebody is alleging. What I'm also saying is that I don't personally have any experience of this or awareness. And I'll give you one, at least one reason why that's the case. And that's because I'm a Franciscan friar. I'm not a diocesan priest. And I, like other religious who knew Cardinal McCarrick or ordained by him, we didn't have the same kind of relationship. And the structure is very different. My ordinary, the equivalent of my bishop, is my provincial. And the religious structure, and I think we'll see this, it's not that there hasn't been similar sorts of harassment or abuse in religious life. I can't claim that universally that anything about it. We don't have the statistics. I don't know. But what I can say is that the, the ecclesiastical structures around religious life and diocesan life lend to very different dynamics. As a diocesan clergy person or seminarian in formation preparation to be ordained or who is a, a priest or, and so forth, their structure is such that everything answers with the bishop. Everything stops with the bishop. Theologically, there's a reason for this, that the bishop is the sign of communion with the universal church. And I, it will take too long. You know, if you're interested in this, come to CTU and take for credit or audit, you know, the theology of priesthood class. I'm happy to spend, you know, three months explaining all this to, to, to anyone who's interested. But just assume that theologically, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. Theologically, it makes a lot of sense. The problem is, and then therefore, the kind of practical or juridical structures reflect that. And that in and of itself is not a bad thing either. The problem is, and this is where we get into the language of abuse and the abuse of power and the abuse of others and, and the abuse of office and, and what we might call in a big way clericalism. The problem is when 
that gets abused, when that gets taken advantage of. So what's important to realize is that diocesan priests and diocesan seminarians, everything depends on the bishop. They have absolute authority. And I use that term very advisedly, authority, authority in the church. And so there is no recourse. Oftentimes bishops are appointed by recommendation of the nuncio and by other archbishops to the congregation of bishops and ultimately assigned by the pope. And sometimes these bishops come in from other dioceses. They're people who do not know the ministers, the lay ministers, the seminarians, the priests in a particular diocese. And so in, in many ways, and this is not just to engender sympathy for those who are abusers. I'm not interested in that. But just to think about the dynamics and, and how can this take place, which is a question a lot of people have. These seminarians and, and priests realize that they have no control over the person who is their ordinary, which is the technical term for the person who is the bishop who has authority over them. And so they're stuck. They're stuck in a way that I think is analogous and maybe a more heightened version of what we hear over and over again and when, when victims of harassment and abuse come forward like we saw in the Me Too movement. And so if people can look at that dynamic and say, well, how do these powerful, let's say, for instance, women actors or male actors or so forth, who were victims of this or knew about things, how come they didn't say anything? Well, the truth is there were power dynamics that were very, very serious there that affected people's careers. But the truth is, take that and then ramp it up in such a way that there's no external accountability. And so what I'm hearing you saying, uh, if I'm following, is that there's a structural piece to all of this in terms of what it is that a priest can do, even if they see something that is going wrong, or if they're aware of something that's going wrong, there's really no recourse, there's no way of policing, for want of a better term, they're ordinary. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's part of that. I think what I'm more interested in highlighting is that for those who are the subject of abuse or harassment, I see. There's very little recourse, or at least the feeling of it. Well, but, it, but it, also there's, there's the theological piece of, and particularly when we look at the long sweep of this, the culture of Catholicism is that both priests and bishops, they didn't just have earthly power. They had the power of salvation in some ways. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. The perception of that, for sure, either self-perception or the perception of the faithful yeah. and others. And, and I'll just say that there, there was a good article not long ago by the church historian Massimo Fagioli, who talks about something that I often talk about in, in my courses, particularly in the Theology of Orders, about, and I'm using my phrase now, the long shadow cast by Trent. And one of the things that Trent does in the wake of the Reformation is double down on what makes a priest a priest. What's dis distinctive about Roman Catholic clergy is what in Latin is called potestas or the power. And rather than seeing that power exercised as one in communion with the body of the faithful, which we see at the Second Vatican Council, you know, for instance, we, we see it in the reform of the liturgy where the, the people of God, the, the assembly, that the priest comes from the assembly and procession returns back to the assembly. There's a, there's a deeper sense of baptism that gets lost in the, in the late Middle Ages and it gets concretized at Trent. And we've had that for 500 years, this sense that you just described, that the priest and the bishop, they are kind of Christ's, you know, representatives on earth. And they have a, you use the term correctly, a kind of power. Oftentimes that gets, you know, viewed kind of mystically or something as a magical power. What's, what's always important for us to realize theologically is that it's Christ who's working. 
It's not the priest. It's not the bishop. Christ who works through them, right? It, just as Christ works through the spouses who are the ministers of the sacrament of marriage at their wedding, just like Christ works through the assembly at the celebration of the Eucharist, right? But the, that distorted sense of potestas has led to this. It's led to the clericalism. So let me just say one more thing too, and that's the distinction. So I described the diocesan structure. The religious structure is very different. You know, for instance, our ordinary, we answer to a provincial, a provincial that is elected by the members of that religious order and who serves a limited term that cannot be renewed. So every, at least for the, it varies by religious community, but for us as Franciscans, you know, we elect a provincial, all the solemnly professed have one vote. It is rather democratic. We believe in the working of the Holy Spirit, but we have some say in that, and there's a time limit. So let's say there's somebody who does abuse their power, somebody who is in a situation analogous to some of these bishops, that clock will run out and there's an opportunity for somebody else to come in. Additionally, there's a more democratic sense or maybe consultative is better than democratic sense of the understanding of obedience and and the understanding of of authority because it's not just the provincial, but we have a vicar provincial and we also elect provincial counselors, a kind of a, a council or a definitorium of people who share authority and represent in a way and, and look after who are responsible for the care of the other friars or in, in women's religious communities, the other sisters. And so it, it's not that abuse of power can't take place in that context. It's just that there are other safeguards that, you know, that have just by historical presence uh, provided for some kind of safeguards. So on one hand, it might be coincidental. It might be divine providence. I, I don't know. I'm not trying to say that one way of exercising ministry in the church is better than another. I'm just saying that though I have a, a personal tie to Cardinal McCarrick, former Cardinal McCarrick, and I have until recently had tremendous respect for him in part because of his his great work on the world stage in terms of social justice advocacy, his work for those at the margins. It's very difficult to reconcile, and this is one of the things that I've struggled with in these revelations, is to reconcile the good works that I, I mean, the concrete good works that I know he's accomplished and he's supported and, and you know, overseen with these horrendous, horrifying allegations in, in his private life, right? And that's where we'll pick up the conversation right after the break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm here with Dan Haran. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm David Dalt, host of Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith, heard each week here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. I want to invite you to a very special event. On Monday, September 24th at 6 p.m., we'll be doing a live taping of Things Not Seen at the Seminary Co-op Bookstore on Woodlawn Avenue near the University of Chicago in Hyde Park. I'll be talking with John Fee about his new book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump. The book looks at the politics and history behind the unprecedented election of 2016, when close to 80% of evangelicals helped propel Donald Trump to the White House. The event is free and open to the public. You can RSVP at semcoop.com. That's semcoop.com. So join us Monday, September 24th at 6 p.m. for a live taping of Things Not Seen at the Seminary Co-op Bookstore in Hyde Park. It's going to be a fantastic conversation. I'll look forward to seeing you there.
Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with my friend David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss uh, current events and topics. This season, we're looking at one topic in particular, tensions and frustrations in the church, and we do so informed by our Catholic faith. We have been talking about the revelations of clergy sexual abuse and cover-up in the summer of 2018, and I've been sharing a little bit about my own experience of and understanding of the dynamics within the church, within both religious life and diocesan uh, priesthood, that helps, I hope, to unpack some of the how did this happen, what is actually going on here, what are the dynamics at play. And right now we're, I think, shifting our gears a little bit to talk about, you know, not just what are the, what is the situation that unfolded, but how has it affected us personally? Yeah, and so I have some questions for you coming out of that last segment. In particular, the thing that you said right before we took the break, which was, up until recently, you've had great respect for McCarrick for the good work that he's done on behalf of Catholic social justice teaching, not just here in America, but worldwide. And then at some point that began to shift. So let me ask you a couple of questions. First of all, you mentioned early on that you were ordained like hundreds of priests were ordained under under McCarrick. What was the nature of the relationship with McCarrick after the ordination? Was it just, a, hey, you showed up and he gave you the, the words of, of ordination and then you never had contact again? Or did you have communications with McCarrick after your ordination? Yeah, so I think for a lot of people, if you're not part of a diocese where the bishop of the diocese is ordaining you, that is often the case. So, you know, Benedictines and Trappists and Franciscans and Dominicans and so forth who are ordained, usually there's an invitation on the part of the provincial to a bishop once a candidate is prepared and supported, endorsed for ordination by that religious community, and a bishop is invited to come and and celebrate that ordination. And so what you're describing, kind of the one-shot encounter, it's incumbent on that bishop to know, at least on some level, the ordinon. And so typically what happens is several weeks or months before the ordination, they'll meet personally with the particular religious ordination candidate. And so they have a couple interactions. I certainly wouldn't want to be a bishop ordaining some guy I've never met before, right? You, You don't want that. And so, uh, but there's also this trust that they've gone through the formation, that their religious superiors have endorsed them for this and so forth. That was my experience, by and large, with with then Cardinal McCarrick. I'm not the first uh, friar from my province to be ordained by him. Uh, There are others. And he has been since my province is on the East Coast and our formation is in Washington, D.C. We we were aware of of him and he's been uh, a good advocate for a lot of peacemaking efforts, you know, has worked on behalf of Catholic Charities and for CRS, Catholic Relief Services, has worked on behalf of, you know, or in support of different Franciscan, likewise NGOs and operations. So, you know, he, he's he's been around and he's been a very good advocate for social justice issues, but, you know, for care for people and, and uh, you know, other concerns more broadly. After ordination, I'd seen him a couple other times because of church events like that. He remembered me, me fondly and, and likewise, he followed my ministerial and academic career and read some of my books and was aware of them and was always very kind and supportive of that. Some years ago, I gave uh, a keynote address at an award ceremony where Jack Jezreel, who is the founder of Just Faith, was was being honored. And so this program in Washington, D.C., the way it worked is 
you know, they, they would honor somebody and then they would invite somebody uh, to give a keynote address. And so Jack and I were the two on the uh, program. And uh, then Cardinal McCarrick had actually taken out you know, an advertisement in the program of this awards event congratulating Jack Jezreel and, and, and mentioning in the, in the ad, uh, he was further you know, pleased to see that I was giving this, a, a, uh, this address and how you know, proud he was of the work that I was doing. So it was kind of a two-for-one congratulations. So what I'm hearing in this is that there's connection, but it's the, the connection of mainly an acquaintance, not you didn't have an, any kind of, of depth of relationship with McCarrick. And so given the fact that what you saw on the surface was these good works that he was doing in terms of social justice, his work with Catholic Relief Services, the fact that he had an interest in your Franciscan brothers in terms of they were geographically close, and so he took an interest in you and your work as a result of that and also as a result of having ordained you, all those pieces. So I would say, if I'm hearing you correctly, that generally you had a very favorable, distant impression of McCarrick. Yeah, let me let me just give one anecdote that highlights this. Um, two of my best friends at the time, uh, husband and wife, were living in Washington D.C., and they went one day to RFK Stadium, the big you know stadium in D.C. on the South Side there, and for a U2 concert. And I remember that next day, my friend calling me and telling me, "You're never going to believe this." that Bono from stage in between songs gave a shout out to Cardinal McCarrick, who was there kind of in the first couple rows, the VIP rows, and, and basically pointed him out and celebrated him for the good work he's done internationally. So it's not just my personal opinion. I think this is why it was so shocking this summer to everybody that it's not like, oh, this is just one minister, one kind of more or less known bishop. This was somebody who on the world stage had the admiration and respect of people like Bono, people like John Paul II, people like Ben the 16th, Pope Francis, lay leaders, you know, he was an informal advisor at times to uh, folks who were working on uh, the Affordable Care Act process and worked very closely with the Catholic Health Association through his connections in Washington, D.C. as the Archbishop Emeritus of, of D.C. I mean, he was somebody who prior to, let's say, June of this year, 99% of people would have an incredibly favorable and ad- admiration for him, a favorable opinion and admiration for him. And so as of June of this year and as the revelations begin to break, I'm curious if you're willing to share kind of how that began to feel for you. What was it like internally as you were learning about this, about a person that you had respect and admiration for, to begin to learn this kind of double, this double life, this, this, other, this other side? Yeah, well, yeah, it seems it's more than a double life, isn't it? You know, it's one thing. Everybody has a right to their kind of privacy. Everybody has a right, you know, I, I you know, whatever. Double life, I think, rightly describes this, but it's it's so much more than that. It's 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 shocking. It's horrifying. It's disgusting. I guess for a long time, I, I didn't know how to feel about it. I mean, very upset, very distraught, very disturbed. I think disturbed is a good way to describe it. I think as the months have gone by, you know, there were some points over the summer where friends of mine who are, are notable journalists had reached out to me for comment or, or this sort of thing. And I shared with them, you know, and I'm happy to share here that at the time I was not ready to talk about it because I wasn't sure how I felt. Not because I had doubts about whether, you know, whether things were allegations were to be believed or whether whether I would ever take a stance of defense, which absolutely I would not. 
it's just that it was such a personal thing for me because you think you know somebody. And, and one way I've described it to people is, as, as you rightly said, I didn't really have a close personal relationship with him, but I did have a connection to him. And it'd be like, I would imagine, learning that an aunt of yours or a cousin or somebody that you thought you know, that maybe you see uh, once a year, every couple of years or something that you've, you know, who's been part of your life or tied to you in some way is a bank robber or a murderer or a rapist. And I think this is something that's, that's deeply troubling. You feel connected and, you know, from a distance, obviously, in my case, you know, I have, I, my, it was a trying time and is a trying time for me because I think what's so jarring is to try to reconcile, though there, there is no reconciliation between the good works that one actually has done, and he has actually done this, and the very real possibility of these very horrendous, evil, terrible things that one has done as well. And I think that's true for any, you know, for anybody. It's especially true for somebody who one looks up to. And, and like I said, I, I did, again, in many ways from, you use the term acquaintance, that's probably correct, um, a good way to describe it. Somebody I would see every couple of years, somebody who had expressed respect for me, somebody that I certainly respected. And so it's something I carried with me. And maybe, you know, this is a good place to kind of switch gears. And so I, I had been dealing with that and, and processing and praying about that and talking with people about that on a personal level. And then August rolls around and we get the uh, Pennsylvania grand jury report and, and the, the just it, not directly related, um, but they're of a sort, <laughs> you know, a very clear sort. And that just was even more devastating, not because I wasn't aware of these realities. In fact, many of the things that were conveyed in, the, in that report, as people know, you know, go back 70 years, 50 years, et cetera. A lot of the same kind of timeline that you saw in the spotlight reporting in the early 2000s in Boston. But I'm not saying that to dismiss it, the, the seriousness of it, because I think it's important for people to to really grapple with the realities before us and, and our history. As you and I have said on this podcast before, one of the problems in the United States when it comes to structural injustices like racism, misogyny, and so forth, is that we have not grappled with our histories, right? We haven't grappled with the reality of chattel slavery and the the genocide of uh, native peoples and so forth. And likewise, the church, I don't think, has adequately grappled with its own crimes, its own uh, complicity in in some of this stuff. I have have great confidence that it's the systems that are in place now as somebody who entered religious life after the Dallas Charter, after uh, 2002, and have been religious for the better part of all that time, the training we go through, the workshopping, the safeguards and everything, stuff is in place where the horrendous things that have come to light further, I can't see happening again. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't grapple with and struggle with the history that we have. And so, you know, maybe I bounce this back to you, David, as as a father, as a husband, as a Catholic. I know certainly I have even, you know, not even as, but also as a religious, as a priest, my faith has been shaken by this. My trust has been shaken by this. How are, how are you thinking and feeling about this? Both my wife and I are converts. My wife was raised Presbyterian in Washington, Pennsylvania. She grew up a little over a mile from Immaculate Conception, which is a parish there in Washington, Pennsylvania, in western Pennsylvania. There are eight priests from the report that are accused 
that have been associated with Immaculate Conception. The last one served there in 2000. Wow. So this was happening to her peers, to her contemporaries, to people that she went to high school with. I came to the church having been raised an atheist and having been around Southern Protestantism, eventually coming out of all that and deciding that, you know, I'm not convinced by Protestantism. And for me, Catholicism is kind of the last hurrah. I was having a conversation with my wife yesterday and we were talking about, you know, for me right now, the choice is I'm either going to find a way to stay Catholic or I'm going to basically return to non-practicing because I, I, don't, I don't find in Protestant worship the kind of depth of truth about Jesus that I find in Catholicism. But I'm finding it really hard right now yeah. <laughs> to, be, to be a person who goes and sits in a pew. And even in a, in a really—and and again, my wife, who is so wise, pointed this out. We're blessed here in Hyde Park— at having a parish that benefits from not only a good pastoral staff, but also we oftentimes have guest preachers who are CTU faculty. I'm blessed by that, but but what my wife pointed out was that the church is much larger than just one parish. And it's not a matter of whether or not you hear from a particular pulpit words of remorse or words that actually address with empathy the charges and the reality that's happening out there but whether this is happening from all pulpits and in fact is happening and resonating from the the highest ramparts of the hierarchy. And I haven't heard that yet. I think that I was very heartened by what Pope Francis did when he was in Ireland. He, in a very busy schedule, took 90 minutes to meet with eight survivors and to listen to them with empathy and with care. And I wasn't in the room, but from the reports, When the survivor said, and we need you to say this to the congregation when you speak later, that nearly verbatim, word for word, he said the words that they asked him to say. That, to me, at least in terms of Pope Francis's approach to this, went a distance in giving me some solid ground to stand on. You know, I I think that there's a lot of laypersons right now who are really confused and are especially confused and saddened and angered by not just the things that happened, because, we I mean, this is not new news. We've known that this has been happening and that there have been aspects of this. But the really flat-footed response of a lot of the clerics, the bishops, who have either tried to find a way to obfuscate or who have found a way worse to equivocate what has happened, instead of owning it, and really beginning to try and and make penance and reconciliation about this. And one of the things, again, that Pope Francis said that stuck with me was he said at several points, and, you know, it, it's, he didn't say it in English, but basically he said, it, this, is, this is on me. I own this. This is my responsibility. Would that more bishops would follow his lead. So that's my first gloss is just, you know, my wife and I are... You know, we both came to the church with a lot of hope and, you know, it has been a rough, it's been a rough, it's been a rough 10 years for her and a rough 15 years for me. And especially having all these things come to light, it's, it's difficult to be in this position. And I want you to get, get a chance to do a follow on question, but then I'd really like to talk about my children as well. Yeah. Well, let me just, you know, follow up with that and say that 
I think your experience, you know, the, the phrase you used was find a way to stay Catholic or return to non-practicing. I think that's not just something that a convert or a, a lay convert but also those in religious life and those who are ordained ministers in the church, many of us, I'll speak for myself, I have a similar thought. I mean, especially in, in, in the kind of one-two punch of the summer, it's shaken me, you know. I, I, think, I think the role of doubt in one's faith, the role of doubt in vocation, is something worth naming that doesn't get named. I know there will be some people and cynics and, and trolls and others who might listen to this and hear, oh, well, you know, Father Dan is, you know, upset about this and he, he's, he's endorsing this, you know, you know, find a way to stay Catholic or, or return to non-practicing or something. And so he must not be, you know, a real blah, blah, blah. I, I don't know anybody who can seriously weigh and consider the things that have come to light and, and with an awareness that there's more. You know, an awareness that this is just one state and that this is not an isolated thing. You know, that was the the bullshit excuse that John Paul II used in the wake of the Boston reporting. It was the bullshit excuse that a lot of other people used in the early 2000s that, you know, well, this is just an American thing or this is just a Boston thing. No, it's and I've also heard and I think you're right, David, I, I agree with you if, if this is what you said, you know, or that there's nothing worse than the equivocation, which I've heard horror stories of of priests um, in the pulpit on Sunday after these revelations saying something like, well, yeah, well, there's sexual abuse in families and sexual abuse in other professions and teachers. That's true, but it's not relevant. <laughs> that's my point. It's like, yeah, that's true. And, and, and the percentages, et cetera, et cetera, don't matter. It's true that there's more family domestic abuse than there is clergy abuse. So what? The issue at stake here is what the church has done. And by church, in this case, I mean the church leadership in terms of a cover-up. The, that abuse happens is horrible and sinful and criminal, and that it happens in all these different pockets of society is true and inevitable. Not, I don't know about inevitable, but tr- it's just true. That's not what's at stake here. That's not what's at issue. The issue is in an institution that is entrusted with the, the corporal and the spiritual safety and life and well-being of the body of Christ, of all of its members, that there has been such disrespect and harm and, uh, that, that's unfolded and that there's no recourse for it. It's just disgusting. And so I, I, I just, I echo, it's not just laypersons who are confused and sad and angry. There are those of us too who are religious or those who are ordained, but I think it's incumbent upon us to take a place of humility and realize that though we may not be complicit in any kind of strict sense of that understanding, we're, we're kind of, we are associated with this as leaders in the church. We may not have, and I'll, I'll speak for myself. I've never been in a position to cover up something or to, you know, to whistleblow something. I mean, I'm grateful for that in many ways that, that, that means that at least in the circles that I've moved in, this hasn't been something to my knowledge that has, that has taken place. But like I said, I entered religious life in 2005, you know, years after stricter policies and a, and a certain a public awareness and a church awareness of, of these realities have taken hold. But it's our place to, to do the mea culpa, not just in a, a superficial way, but like you said with Pope Francis, I think there's a lot more he has to do. And, and there's been a lot of criticism of him, I think, about has he done enough and so forth. I think also it's important that we don't, you know, in this instant gratification culture of 
media and sound bites and stuff, that there isn't just some kind of quick press release or some quick thing. I think there needs to be some deeply integrated, profound penance, speaking to, listening, acknowledgement, a la a truth and reconciliation kind of process that we see in other parts of the world. And so that's not going to be a one-shot quick thing. You can't do that. It's going to require culture shifts. And I'll tell you, I have a lot of trust in Pope Francis, and I have a lot of trust in people like Cardinal O'Malley in Boston and Cardinal Supic here in Chicago. I don't have a lot of trust in the Roman bureaucrats at the Curia who, in order to do this, would mean that there's further resistance from them. Well, you just mentioned culture, and that's one thing that my wife and I have also been talking about a lot, and that is the fact that this can't just be a, a switch flip, because when you have this kind of depth of complicity and conspiracy, I mentioned earlier in the program the gold crosses, that takes thought. You know that, and that takes that takes communication, and it takes it takes a, a kind of sub rosa understanding that this is that this is what we do around here. You know, it's kind of deliverance level kind of stuff. That takes time to change, and as we as we pivot in the in the last segment to talk more generally about kind of some of the blowback from all of this, I think some of what we've been seeing with Nuncio Vagiano and others is attempts of this culture that has this deeply entrenched notion of anti-reform and and present the best face at all costs to react against a genuine attempt to begin to bring light and and reforming to this. But before we sw- switch yeah. gears though and take our quick break, you you mentioned something about being a father yeah. and and kids. I mean, would you like to say something? I I really would. So my two children, my daughter is 8, my son tomorrow as we're taping this will turn 7. And they're being raised in a Catholic school, the parish school here in Hyde Park. And we love this school, and we love this parish, and we feel very blessed to be here. And I can't speak for my wife, but I will speak for myself and the conversations that my wife and I have had. I have been increasingly and genuinely frightened as my children have blossomed into, let me own it, beautiful, intelligent, wonderful, vivacious, energetic young children I worry because in one sense, they are exactly what an eight-year-old and a seven-year-old should be. And there's there's been a voice, an undertow that has been there in my head as they have been going to school and being at this parish. And as people have said, do you want to become an altar server? Do you want to become, do you want to help out with the choir? Do you want to do this and that? There's always been a voice that has caused me to be hesitant because it's like, how long will this innocence last? How long until someone decides to reach out and touch my child in an inappropriate way, how long until that occurs. It terrifies me. And I've got no basis in the parish of believing that any forces like that are at work. No evidence. But then again, Bono reached out and called out McCarrick in the second row and said, what a good man, what good work he's doing. So as a layperson, as a father, as a, as a person who is trying to be a faithful Catholic in an increasingly difficult time, it's really troubling for me to figure out where to put trust right now and troubling for me to figure out how I can raise my children in the church <laughs> without exposing them to the dangers that are now increasingly clearly in the church. And, and to me, that's, that's the struggle that my wife and I are having most acutely right now. We, we, don't, we don't see a way forward 
to have this be all sweetness and light, at some point we're going to have to start talking to our kids about this danger. And we already have to some extent in age-appropriate ways. But at some point, you know, our kids are smart and they're going to hear things and they're going to come to us with questions. And we want to make sure that we have decent answers about why we stayed does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I think I think you're giving voice to what, what probably a lot of our listeners are feeling and thinking. And it's, it is true. I mean, on the one hand, I, I think, and, and I don't want to speak out of turn or, or in, inappropriate or incorrectly, but, but my sense is that a lot of the, the systems and structures that are in place since 2002 have made, if ever places of, of worship like churches or Catholic educational institutions like elementary and high schools and stuff, the safest they could be. That said, I think you're, what I'm hearing you say is, is, is deep from the heart that a lot of parents and, and, you know, I don't have kids, obviously I'm a, I'm a priest and a friar, but you know, I have a lot of godchildren and nieces and nephews. And I, I think of them as well. And, and many of whom are involved in, in their parish life and, and are really active and so forth in that way. And something their parents must, must think about, too, because what the grand jury report does is bring into consciousness this, this fear, reasonable, understandable fear, even if a lot of these things, if not most of these things, are horrors that unfolded long before these kind of reforms in the U.S. church took place. So I'm in no position to assume, as, as I hear you say, too, that, that things are rosy and cheery, as you put it, like things are not great collectively in the zeitgeist of, of Catholicism right now. And, you know, in the spirit of, of theology and spirituality and scripture, I think we need to sit in that, <laughs> you know, it's, it's the, it's the tradition of lament in the church is the place of righteous anger, but it raises some really difficult questions about how we move forward and how we address this from the very practical and real thing. Like, do you sign off on letting your kid go to an altar server picnic there is no, as you said yourself, that there's no kind of pressing fear or concern or reason for a concern, but this lingers in the back of your mind, and understandably so. And I think a lot of people are going to struggle with that. That's my understanding of, of that gentleman who stood up during the homily in, in, at the Georgian parish that's been reported. You know, what, what do we do? What are you going to do to people like me, you know, a, a fellow presbyter, a fellow priest? You know, what are the bishops going to do? And I think this is a moment where you have every right and every reason and are justified in having those doubts and concerns. And it's incumbent upon those who are entrusted at present with leadership in the, in the community of the church and in, in the body of Christ to take that seriously. And listeners who know my work will not be surprised that I resonate very strongly with Pope Francis's repeated identification of clericalism as sort of the original sin in the church with regard to many things in terms of pastoral leadership and ministry. And I could not agree more. And so there, I think it's, it's our sisters and brothers, the, our fellow baptized Christians who need to call priests and religious and bishops accountable. But I think the last caveat I'll add before we go to our break is that it's important to remember, and this is not a cop-out, this, this is a theological reality, that, that the church is not a democracy. So calling for the resignation of people is, is not, it's neither theologically sound nor pragmatic. That's just not how it works. On the other hand, the church, despite its appearance, is also not a monarchy. 
that despite the ecclesiastical and juridical authority that, that bishops exercise and pastors share in, it's not just up to them. There is the census fidelium. There is this, you know, they are no more Catholic Christian than you or I or any, you know, or than the most recently baptized infant this past Sunday. So I, I think that's all, all that needs to be held together. And it's difficult in a time where we want reform, we want changes, and rightly so, and there needs to be. But I also think there needs to, there needs to be kind of a, a grappling, a, com, a coming to an awareness and accepting among those who are called to and entrusted with leadership in the church at present to recognize what their real role is. And it's not this Tridentine notion of potestas, of individual power. That needs to be eradicated. And so let us shed more light to dispel that 500-year-old shadow of Trent. Well, with that, let's take a short break, and we'll be back in a couple minutes. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Haran, and you're listening to The Francis Effect. The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. Thank you. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks we get together to talk about issues and topics through a lens informed by our Catholic faith. This season we're looking at frustrations and pinch points and friction points in the church. And right now, today, we're, we're speaking personally about the kind of the most acute one that is in present conversation, and that is the revelations, the increasingly and continuing revelations about about sex abuse in the church, and particularly the grand jury report from Pennsylvania, and the issues of, uh, of McCarrick and others. So, Dan, we've been speaking very personally. There's a lot here on the table, and I think that we both have expressed that we're in places where we're struggling in various ways. And I appreciate what you said uh, before the break about the calling for mass resignations may not be the best approach, but maybe one way, I would say, would be calling for mass repentance, uh, finding a way to, even on symbolic levels, but also on very structural levels, to admit and to make amends. You know, I, I mentioned that I have two young children, and Daniel Tiger's neighborhood is useful wisdom right here. Saying I'm sorry is the first step. Then, how can I help? And that pastoral moment, and it's a pastoral moment that needs to be handled with some delicacy, I think, because it's the pastors who have, in some ways, created the problem and created the abuse. And so now, how can a pastor pastor in this moment, uh, that's that's a that's a crazy thing. But I will I will say that one way that a pastor shouldn't pastor is by dissembling. And one of the things that I have observed recently uh, in the wake of this is some in the church and in the hierarchy of the church deciding that this is the time to really ramp up the finger pointing at same sex attracted people and others to miss entirely the the point, to miss entirely the fact, to miss entirely the truth, that what we're talking about here are crimes of power and crimes of opportunity, and that those who would abuse children are looking for situations in which they can abuse children. They're not necessarily looking for the gender of that child as the operative factor, but rather the opportunity to act. 
And so one thing that is just I'm very aware of is that is that we have seen a backlash, but it's been a backlash that has been pointed in the wrong direction and has been victimizing and in some cases re-victimizing those in the church who are not responsible for these horrors. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, yeah, what we've seen is as a ramping up, as you put it, of uh, politicizing something that is I would consider to be non-political. And so you're right. You're, the target has been gay and lesbian people, in particular gay priests, bishops, seminarians, and so forth. I find those concerns dubious to begin with, given some of the people who are leveling those concerns. And Can you be more specific about that? or No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the sense that I, I don't want to be slanderous. Uh, I don't want to participate in that. But, I, 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 you know, it's, it's one of these, as the adage goes, you know, doth protesteth too much. Mm. And I have my questions, as others have, about what motivates these concerns. And, you know, we see that with the former nuncio to the United States, uh, Vigano, and his quote-unquote testimony, which has largely been debunked as an 11-page screed, you know, he takes facts like the McCarrick allegations and other things and then weaves into there in a true Breitbart-like conspiracy theory quilt or whatever, uh, Afghan. I don't, I don't know what, what one knits exactly. Um, a scarf of vitriolic sort of accusations against Pope Francis, against others. And it's so clearly politicized. You know, as, as people have rightly pointed out, the person most responsible for this, including the appointment of the bishops who are named, for instance, in the grand jury report, is the Bishop of Rome who reigned for 26 years and who, in the wake of the spotlight reporting and all the reporting that followed, said that this was an American problem, if it was at all, who you know, knew about these things and did nothing. And that's now St. John Paul II. Really serious concerns, I think, theologically about the canonization process, I think that highlights too. But, you know, the fact also that Benedict XVI was overseeing all this sort of stuff, which has really blown back in the recent days and and further reports and more that Pope Francis has actually called reporters to do. And he said, you know, I'm not going to say anything about this uh, Vigano letter because you can uncover the facts. And as the facts have become uncovered, you know, the whole thing is kind of falling apart. It's interesting to see what outlets on on the Internet have uh, rallied around this and have defended it and what persons have done that. Well, there's been a lot of a lot of hay made about that silence and the refusal to comment. And there have been some who have taken that as, well, if he was innocent, then he would have protested his innocence and would have a lot a lot to say. I really like the way that Francis handled that. I like how it has unfolded, but I also have had access to the results and the fruits of that further inquiry. There are some, as I've been looking at the interwebs and following on social media, some who do not, for example, avail themselves of the investigative reporting that followed in the wake of that, who still think that the Vigano accusations have been unchallenged. I mean, that has been their reality in some way. That they, no, but, this, but I think it's the echo chain. I think so. You know, one of the things that, that we can't lose sight of is that as with our civil and cultural reality, so too with our church perception. And I think what we see playing out is not unlike I, I use Breitbart advisedly. I think that Breitbart and these other kind of right right wing is actually is to deserve, you know, it's, it's a disservice to people who are consider themselves very conservative or to the right or whatever in politics. It's just this horrendous, disgusting sort of world. So 
quote unquote life site news. I mean, the, the, everything about the name of this website is bogus. They're a deeply militant anti-abortion group. That's how they are founded. They're not really news. I guess they're a site. They're a website. So that part of the title is true. But that has been one of the greatest sort of dispensers of this conspiracy theory sort of stuff. And its target, as you rightly point out, is Pope Francis and those that they view as not supporting their ideological causes. When I go back to the dubious claims, I mean, one only has to Google or look on social media to see these memes of people like Cardinal Burke, Raymond Burke, who has been the kind of largest, higher up, highest up uh, ecclesiastical leader who has gone after Pope Francis and others, who's made really deeply homophobic remarks, has talked about the feminization of the clergy and of the church, just really bizarre things. And then, on the other hand, he's the one who dresses up in all this fine lace and these super long capes, the Magna Capas, and has all these altar boys around him all the time carrying his cape and everything. You know, it, it's just comical and very weird. And so I just named that as one of, you know, to go back to my comment earlier about it's curious that somebody who is very concerned about the feminization of the church would, would prefer to dress this way and to perform this way in public. But it's all, you know, that's, that's kind of the sideshow. The, the real kind of issue is this political targeting that's going on. And you saw that with the Vigano letter and the names of the people who are included in that. But you also mentioned LifeSite News. And just over the past week, LifeSite News has also released this new website called Faithful Shepherds, where they, they literally rank the various bishops about their faithfulness, quote-unquote, according to LifeSite News's and those that read LifeSite News's ideas about what makes for a true Catholic bishop. It's interesting to me, the parallels. So in the wake of the grand jury in Pennsylvania, we have now searchable databases, and this is how earlier in the conversation I was able to find that the parish that was near where my wife grew up in Washington, Pennsylvania, had eight priests who were accused because I have a database now that I can search based upon that revelation from the grand jury report. Well, it's interesting to me that in parallel to this, LifeSite News has released its own database, and it's ranking bishops, but their criterion are basically whether or not the bishops take seriously the exhortations in Amoris Laetitiae. You know, and wh- you know whether, and so which is magisterial teaching, right? You know, yeah. lest they forget. I mean, this, this yeah, sorry. But I, I was going to say, you know, on the one hand, we have a genuine crisis of the threat to young children that needs to be addressed and needs to have both reconciliation and recompense made for. And then on the other side, we have, ooh, is someone worried about giving communion to a divorced and remarried Catholic? A, an important theological problem. Perhaps not the most pressing theological problem facing the church at this particular moment, and yet that becomes the sand thrown in the bull's eyes to distract us from the fact that there is this real crisis that needs to be addressed, this real gaping wound that needs healing. And instead, it's no, no, no. It's the same thing as saying that that a, that a whole garment approach to life is somehow distracting from the very important question of abortion. Abortion is a very important question. Finding a way to defend the, the unborn is an important issue for Catholics. No doubt about it. But imagining that somehow that caring for other aspects of human life beyond the unborn human life is somehow a distraction from that is nonsense. 
And let me say, it, it's again, I think it's a rhetorical tactic. It's a way of diverting the conversation. You know, the, the old Mad Men thing from uh, back when that series was on the on the air. If you don't like the question, change the conversation. That's what I think LifeSite News and other folks are doing right now with this Amoris Letizier underscored Faithful Shepherd site. It may seem right now that we've gotten off of the topic of earlier in the conversation, but really we haven't because this is part of the problem. When people who pick up the banner and claim to be the most faithful Catholics are the least capable of actually addressing what is the most pressing problem right now in American Catholicism, that's a problem. Yeah, I agree. I I actually think it's even more egregious. I I like that. I I never really got into Mad Men, but you know, it's it's the, it's sort of the birth of uh, what politicians call pivoting, right? You know, somebody asks a journalist asks a politician a question, they don't like the question, or they don't have an answer, they don't want to answer, and so then they change the conversation. I think that's right. I think what's going on with Church Militant and LifeSite News and these other bigoted, you know, hateful, spiteful websites run by people who are are very unwell, as is evident by the kind of hobby horse issues that they have that you're naming, is not just changing the conversation. It's something far worse, which is trying to parlay the real suffering, the real fear, the real doubts the real challenge to people's faith that we see across the board beginning and first and foremost with the victims and survivors of abuse and harassment. It is disgusting to me that people would use that to their own advantage regardless of what their end is. It is a disgusting post-factum justification that is taking people like Vigano and these other, I would call them clowns on the internet, who have an agenda that is motivated by hate and bigotry and other despicable intentions. And what they're doing is they're capitalizing on the suffering, the real suffering of women and men who have been harmed and those who are now suffering secondarily because of the doubts uh, of, of their faith, because of the struggle. Like you shared yourself that you and your wife are struggling. These are real pressing issues about family life, about faith, about, you know, about the church. And these groups and individuals are using that to stoke fears and concerns and to go after their own personal political targets that include, you know, all the way up to the top with Pope Francis and all the way down to whomever disagrees with them. And I find it so, so disgusting. Well, so I guess one of the things that we can ask now as we're drawing the, the episode to a close is for listeners who feel so moved or listeners who feel comfortable doing so, uh, reach out to us. I want to be aware that these are real issues, but they also have real people who have been affected by them. And some of those people listen to our show. You know, I am thankful, and I'm, I'm sure I speak for Dan as well, that we have not been directly affected by these scandals, but some listeners have been. And so I want to be aware and sensitive as we move forward in this season that the topics that we're bringing to the conversation is a set of topics that has explosive possibilities to it. I want to be aware of that and sensitive to that. I hope that you will feel comfortable giving us feedback as you listen to these the episodes in this in this season. I just want to add one more thing too and I hope it's been evident from our conversation and our discussion so far and I and I think I I'll take a leap and say that I, I speak on behalf of David too that he and I are both we want to acknowledge the victims and survivors of uh, clergy sex abuse and those who have been harmed by harassment and abuse in other ways as well. And, and know that you are in our prayers, 
that you are in our hearts and that we are grateful for your your courage and for your strength in this. And so I think we'd be remiss if we, if we didn't acknowledge that, given the gravity of the subject. Absolutely. And thankful also for your your honesty and your courage, those who have spoken up and those who have only been able to speak of this with the Holy Spirit in their hearts. I just want to say that, you know, we are praying for you as well. Even those who choose not to self-identify, you are in our thoughts and in our prayers. So with that, as we move on in the season, we will be looking at a series of topics. As Dan mentioned, we'll be looking at Latino, Latinoa experience in the next episode. And then moving on, we'll be, we'll be dealing with a range of topics. We would love to invite you as these topics speak to you to share them with your friends. And I hope that you'll feel comfortable telling other folks about the show. It's a real help to us to get the word out there. And Dan, this was in many ways a a show that I've been dreading as we've been planning it, but also I've been looking forward to. It's been a real bittersweet type of thing to to come to this conversation. I just want to say, as, as a person who has grown over these past seasons with you in friendship, I want to acknowledge the fact that you have trusted me in this conversation with a lot that you weren't ready to talk about with other people, and I just want to say thank you. Thank you, David. And with that, we'll be back with you in two weeks. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We record the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should check them out at their website, zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N Center dot O-R-G. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes you can check out from our first and second seasons. Thank you for listening.